Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of personal growth. And if you've listened before, welcome back. For most of human history, it was just assumed that people would have children. But over the last several decades, more and more people have deliberately chosen to live child-free. According to a poll by Pew Research in 2021, 44% of non-parents between the ages of 18 and 49 say it is either not to or not at all likely that they will have children someday. Of those, 56%, over half, say it's because they just don't want to have kids. And then there are probably even more people, and I'd put myself in this category, who are mostly planning on having kids, you know, if it all works out and that's something that I can do, but are still at least a little bit on the fence about it. And the question of whether or not to have kids is one of the biggest decisions we're going to make in our lives. And surveys suggest that almost 20% of parents regret having a child. And then on the other hand, Bad parenting has enormous consequences for children. It's an incredibly high-leverage decision that we're making here. In this episode, we're going to be talking about what makes a good parent and whether becoming a parent might make sense for you or not. Joining me is someone I'm very glad made the choice to become a parent, psychologist and author, Dr. Rick Hansen. So thanks for that, Dad. (laughs) Well, you're welcome, kid. Good call. (laughs) Well, you're the gift that keeps on giving, Forrest. Warming my heart over here. Thanks, Dad. I appreciate that. And, you know, it's probably worth disclosing at the beginning of this episode that, hey, if you're new here, that's my dad. I am his child. That's probably going to enter into the conversational dynamic a little bit. And also that I would describe myself as somebody who had like a really good run as a kid. You know, I was born into a very healthy family system. You know, very responsive parents who cared about my well-being. I think that you guys were, by and large, really darn good parents. And that might kind of influence how we talk about this topic a little bit. Yeah, great. Thank you. So where I would love to start with, Dad, is just your take on the significance of this choice at all and just giving it the credit that it's due. Because I think that a lot of people do just sort of blindly assume that they're going to have kids and it just becomes a sliding into that as opposed to taking it as a active and important choice in their life. Well, until the advent of reliable contraception in my lifetime, even framing this as a choice is really interesting and absolutely unprecedented in our biological run for 300,000 years as our species, and then certainly our hominin and primate ancestors before that. So point one, point two, for a lot of people, they don't have a choice. So we're in a context here that's very specific, and I just kind of want to frame that. Great points. As a specific choice, wow, with great power comes great responsibility. And to make a volitional choice to bring a being into the world, my jokey phrase, to inflict consciousness on unsuspecting flesh that can then experience joys and sorrows and all the rest, and as a hostage to fate of all the things that can happen in this life, to commit yourself, your future self, for the next 20 years and beyond to fulfilling really appropriate duties to that precious, vulnerable being, innocent, precious, vulnerable being you brought into the world. That, you know, is a very, very great power. And so with that comes a lot of responsibility around that, which to me, when we do have that choice, it does behoove us, much like you said, not to sort of slide into it based on 
custom or the expectations of others or trying to please somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Or throw a kind of Hail Mary pass into the future in which Mm. you're sort of hoping for the best that somehow having a child will lift you out of your depression or save your relationship. So that's, for me, definitely a kind of a frame here. Yeah. And just thinking about myself here, where I want to start this conversation is just asking, why do you want to become a parent? Mm. If you're somebody who does want to become a parent, looking inside myself and asking, hey, Forrest, like, why do you want to become a parent, right? I think Mm -hmm. it's a really important question to ask yourself. And as I was prepping for this conversation, what I kind of bumped into inside of myself is this question. Is having a kid an end itself, or is it a means to different kinds of ends? In doing this, you're separating out your motivations and expectations for parenthood from all of the messages that we get externally, the pressures from other people that you're talking about, dad, the cultural messages that we have. And there are a lot of understandable desires that a person might have in becoming a parent, right? A lot of things that they might want. And you said that, a couple of them right there, that Hail Mary into the future, that, hey, maybe this kid will will save your marriage or solve your depression or whatever it is that you're doing there. But even other than that, there are a lot lot of wants a person could have, right, around having a kid. Maybe they want companionship. They want a friend. They want somebody to look after them when they're older. They're like, hey, that nursing home doesn't look so great. It would be great if I had another place to live, whatever it might be. Maybe they're looking for uh, immortality in a sense. The feeling that we have inside of ourselves that something of us is left behind in another when we're gone, the sense of lineage. Maybe you want more love. You're trying to fill the hole in the heart. You feel like you're not getting enough love from your relationship, from your life, from whatever, and hey, maybe you can get it from your kid. Maybe you want to change some big aspect of your life. Maybe the notion of totally uh, upheaving the table, as I was saying early on, like really appeals to you because you don't like the way that things are so much. Mm. I want to start by saying that these are all really understandable motivations. These are very normal motivations that people have. People talk about these motivations openly. One of the big points of, of math that people do around having a kid is often around the idea that, oh, somebody will be able to take care of you when you're older. And I just want to say that is a very dangerous reason to become a parent, man. That is a very dangerous reason because you're turning your kid into a means to an end rather than just being an end itself. And for me, this has been really interesting to go through this process and to ask myself, man, okay, if that's not the reason that I'm doing it, then why am I doing it? And I know that those aren't the reasons, but I'm kind of having a hard time finding what the reason is. It's this sort of like ineffable quality of fulfillment or a service orientation or just thinking of it as like this huge experience that's available to us in life. And I, as I say sometimes on the podcast, I want to feel like I I got everything I could out of this lifetime. And being a parent is like such a big part of it. It's such a big part of the human experience. And I I do sort of want that for myself in a way. Mm. But I don't think that that puts the kid into a tricky position, if that makes sense. So I want to just pause there for a moment and give you an opportunity, Dad, to respond to anything I've said or add anything that you think I should be adding here. Yeah. Well, coming into this topic, I felt both trepidation and delight because Mm. it really gets at so many deep things in which I'm implicated two ways. You're implicated Mm. one way and potentially in a second way. I'm implicated as both a child and a parent. Yeah. We've all had parents. And 
we all saw, we were there when it happened, <laughs> you know, in effect. And we saw, for better or worse, parenting unfold from our perspective as a kid. And then if you've been a parent, you can see that as well. So it's in that context. Second, I definitely want to name the, in this area, the genderizing often of male mm. and female biologies and sure. the ways in which that unfolds, including in social systems that may still be quite tilted toward traditional roles when kids come along. And there's a fair amount of research in, um, certainly in America, I don't know about other, uh, let's say, you know, industrial democracies as westernized yeah uh, yeah mm -hmm. but basically certainly in america very often couples that are let's say heterosexual that come into parenthood with a lot of egalitarian values gender role identification and performance tends to get increasingly polarized when kids come along in traditional mm. ways there are many who swim against those currents uh, your mom and i swam against them in a lot of ways but a lot of people don't and so just in other words what it means to become a parent can really depend a lot on where you're sitting. You know, like I did not have to go through a couple of pregnancies Pregnancy. to end up yeah, with you. Totally. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did not have now to that's a huge you point. Know, bear you and give birth to you and all the rest of that and, and nurse yeah. you and so forth. On the other hand, there's certain beautiful things that many women I've spoken with can say about that incredible biological primal roller coaster that you are just strapped to. At the from the point of conception, uh, that mm -hmm. has you know a kind of intensity and value in and of itself. So just I want to name those things here too. Your framing is really interesting about beware of the reasons for and against, and I would add against, not just mm. beware the reasons. Yeah, I would love you to, to. Yeah, let's yeah. let's go that way a little bit. What do you mean by that? One way to kind of structure this is: what do you want to get out of being a parent? And what do you want to give through mm. being a parent? And can you approach that wisely, recognizing that there can be all kinds of unforeseen limitations and factors on what you hope to get out of being a parent and what you hope to give into? Because the child comes into this world not as a tabula rasa, not as a blank slate, mm. but as a motivated being in its own right from the very from beginning. Needs and all of that, totally. Yeah, who's interacting with the world, who's constructing a sense of things, and who really comes in with her own genetics and nature. And you roll the dice when you conceive a child. And that child can is has a has a role in what you're able to get out of parenthood and what that child is willing to receive from you that you'd like to give into them. Mm -hmm. So taking mm -hmm. that into account, I think it's really important. Mm -hmm. But that said especially to the extent that you have choice about it, it's reasonable to consider, you know, what are, your, what are the benefits and what are the costs? The costs are pretty clear, <laughs> you know, financial costs, physiological costs, especially for women, bearing and rearing. When we wrote the book, Mother Nurture, the first book I did, came out in 2002. We're going to actually reissue it in the next year or two, you know, as a detail. Very cool. But it's yeah. a really good book. And there's, some, there's a line in it that's really quite true, which is, which says that most mothers would say, and this could apply to fathers as well, certainly many fathers, most mothers would say that having a child was the single most demanding, draining, and stressful, and routinely upsetting experience of their life. 
as well as far and away the most important, most meaningful, and most fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Both are true. So we have the costs and the benefits of it all. So I'll leave it there. What do you? What do you? How do you respond to my mulling so far? In what you were saying there, what stood out to me about the notion of like what you get and what you give. Yeah. And maybe this is again to your point, my own positionality of just being a kid and having been a parent. My view on this might change over time. Who knows? But I think that we have a lot more agency as a parent over what we give than over what we get. You know, we control our giving a lot more than we control our getting. And particularly just the the reality of the power and the agency imbalance in this whole thing creates a moral framework for me that really heavily loads me toward being very careful about the notion of what I get from my future child. I'm I'm making a choice here. They aren't. You know, the flesh is unsuspecting, as as you said at the beginning there, Dad. But I'm opting into parenthood. Yeah. And, you know, the the other being on the other side of that equation doesn't get to make that choice, as at least as dear as we yeah. could tell, you know? And so I think that that's just a huge piece of this. And then also the uh, the power imbalance that's present in parenting, where, you know, you're dealing with a very vulnerable being. I mean, we've spent... 30 episodes on developmental experiences of different kinds, you know, and just like the cost that that has on a person. And so those are just all pieces of it that I really want to think about and really want to have like in the center of my mind as I'm approaching this kind of a choice. Yeah, it's great. And I think it's helpful to make a distinction between what we would like to get from the Mm, child, mm -hmm. distinct from what we would like to get from parenting and parenthood and family making altogether, yeah. including what mm-hmm. we get from doing it in relationship with another person who's, let's yeah. say, our partner, or more broadly, because there are all kinds of different family constellations, and keeping in mind that we evolved to raise children in a way that's profoundly different from the way that you know people are raising children in the last couple generations in the developed countries of the world, profoundly different. It's absolutely unnatural. We really evolved to live in the band or village, if you will, that it takes to raise a child. So all that is really in the mix too. Yeah. And you're right. I I would thoroughly agree with you that a lot of psychopathology comes from parents trying to work their kids to get certain supplies from them of different kinds. Yeah. Social supplies, narcissistic supplies, and to try to get the kid to function as a kind of plug-in module in their own fragile self-structure. I know you're mm-hmm. gonna do a riff here about cohut and self-objects and self-psychology. self-objects coming up, which is exactly what you're talking about. Which really made me happy given what a naysayer <laughs> you are about psychodynamic theory and practice. <laughs> It's good to see you finally coming around. I like, a little, I like it. I, I think it's fun. I just think it's got some things. That's all, you know? I think fun was a mixed bag. That's all I'm yeah. saying, man. That's yeah. all I'm saying. So, okay, anyways, so, keep going. So working your kid for supplies and or treating your kid somehow as an, as an it, as an extension of you, yeah, that's, that's definitely problematic. But on yeah. the other hand, yeah. understandably, looking forward to the experiences you know, whatever, yeah, teaching yeah, them how to ride a yeah. bike, playing goofy board games, celebrating their first birthday, you know, yeah. clapping as they walk down the aisle, you know, with their high school diploma. It's pretty cool. And I, and I, you said something at the very, very beginning there, Dad, that I want to 
point to you because I, I thought you were going to go in a slightly different direction. And I always think it's interesting when we have these conversations and my brain starts filling in the words of what you're about to say, but you actually say something else. It's like a really cool like little moment. And I, I just thought where you were going to go with that because you were talking about like what we would like to receive. Yeah. And I think there's a huge difference between what we would like to receive and what we want. Like there's just a tonal difference between those yeah. two things. And I think to your point, like we have blends of motivations in life. Of yeah. course, there's a part of me that like really looks forward to the idea of doing certain kinds of things with a potential future yeah. kid. But that's more in the framework of like what I would like to receive as opposed to what I want or have a clinging attachment to yeah. over and over again. Yeah. And I just oh. think that's a really useful distinction actually in this. Yeah, that's very, that's very good. It's interesting. The kinds of things, so what is evolution? Evolution essentially <laughs> is- I, I cannot imagine a more Rick phrase than what is evolution? <laughs> Go ahead, dad. Do well, your thing, do your thing. Basically, it's like a, <laughs> it's a grinder that is grinding oh, away. Oh, sure, yeah, I see yeah, where you're going. And yeah. shaping uh, organisms in various ways that- you know, over time, develop reproductive advantages by having certain characteristics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, evolution has really, really focused on this this matter of passing on genes that pass on genes. In other words, it's really yeah. focused on conception, reproduction, and enabling the products of that reproduction, particularly in a, in a primate species and human species that tends to not have a lot of kids. So... The process, especially again for women, the biology of this is very powerful. So in terms of what you would like to experience or would want to experience, and just kind of like you're laying out and sketching the sort of, you know, two-bedroom loft you're hoping to buy for under a million dollars in Greenwich Village in Manhattan, you know, you're sketching it out or you're designing your ideal vacation on Verbo. Boom, you have that kid. You are strapped to the rocket ship yeah, of totally. big mama, mother nature. <laughs> and, and so much about that is just completely primal. That sort of yeah. rational, I think it's like the Ben Franklin way of putting the pros and cons on different sides of a sheet of paper. You can just tear that paper up when once mm -hmm. that happens because so much starts taking over. You, sure. that's purely yeah. biological and even societal. You start getting sucked into these dynamics with other people. If you're a woman, strangers come up to you and they want to put their hand on your pregnant belly in supermarkets. You never met them before in your entire life. Yeah, weird stuff, totally. Your own in-laws get involved. You know, relatives that you're really glad you never have seen again suddenly show up because they're interested in your kid. Uh, it's, you know, so to be yeah. really clear, yes, do the analysis. I made your mom do, and we did with her, cash flow projections <laughs> before we had you because I wanted both of us to really understand, you know, the financial implications. What you were getting here. yourself into. Yeah, <laughs> and, totally. you know, and at the point that you were stably conceived and cooking in the oven, as it were, those cash flow projections went out the window because we just had a primal, unconditional, absolutist commitment to you. Yeah. Does it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to your point, Dad, what's the line? Like, no plan survives first contact yeah, yeah. with the enemy. We, like, whatever the line reality. is. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, every, it's the Tysonism. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. You know, like, that's well taken. And I think it's a good point here. But for me, often people use language like that 
to kind of throw up their hands at the whole notion of like having an, a thought process oh, yeah. or creating a plan or whatever. And for me, I actually think that it's the opposite. Mm. I think that the more you've got big, big baba, as you put it, big nature <laughs> driving the buzz, the more important it becomes yeah. to have this kind of a process of really thinking about it because you become you know, you you need to be more dialed because you're going to become undialed as That's the process. That's a great way to look at it. Absolutely, to know why you're on the bus. Because when that yeah, door closes, that when that door you're closes, on the bus, man. Yeah, the bus has left the station at a thousand miles an hour. Yeah, and and you can refer back to, by the way, why I'm on the bus. You can go yeah. back to that. You can look That's at the right. thing you rode. You can think about it. You can reflect on it. Whatever is meaningful for you, right? Okay, so with all of that preamble set. What I really wanted to talk about during a lot of this episode, Dad, was what actually makes a good parent. Uh, and the reason I want to talk about that is because, again, I think that there's kind of a moral obligation here. If you're a parent, do it as well as you can. Doesn't mean perfectly. There are no perfect parents. I'm not going to be a perfect parent. But to do it as well as you can, like give the kid a fighting chance, give yourself a fighting chance out there, right? And so you can kind of ask yourself when we go through this process of this is what it means to kind of be a good parent. Do I want to do that? And, and really ask yourself, honestly, do I want to do that? And it's okay to say no. But if you're saying no here, that's very indicative of how you should answer this question or how you should think about this process. So dad is somebody who's worked with a lot of different people through time and has really, really, really thought about this. What do you think, fundamentally, big picture, makes for good parenting? <sighs> Yeah. There are a lot of ways into that answer. I'll very quickly summarize and just tick the boxes of classic research-based things. You know, I have a deep background in attachment theory and developmental psychology. I did my dissertation on 15-month-olds. And so the standard stuff here. Yeah. You know, good parenting and good enough parenting, first of all, has to do with the fit between the parent and the child. And kids... Mm are active agents. They don't have the same moral culpability and responsibility that adults do, but they also have a lot of potency flowing through them, through their temperament and various choices they begin to accumulate and make themselves for, for how they're going to be. So it's in that context then that we talk about what is good parenting. Uh, good parenting classically is attentive, available, emotionally responsive, nurturing, skillful, self-regulated. Mm. So one thing to just ask yourself is when you're tired, when other people are letting you down, when your kid is being annoying, because they are, they're crying loudly and they will not stop. Uh, there's a science fiction novel I once read in which the alarm clock, the sound of it was a baby crying because nobody can sleep mm. through that sound. When the rubber's hitting the road, can you stay in control of yourself? Really important. And if you have some doubts about that that are realistic, that could be a reason not to become a parent just yet until you have good reason to remove those doubts about yourself. So those, those are really important things. Also, can you recognize the child as a being in their own right, distinct from being just an extension of you? Can you appreciate their autonomy? Can you recognize that there's a consciousness over there that is experiencing things keenly. My mom, who I loved 
immensely. I still love her. She's not with us anymore. Uh, there was a famous episode in which, in our family system, in which she came to visit us for the very first time, and you were perhaps three months old, maybe two months old. And those who know with infants, they have a hard time lifting their head up when they're really, really young. Mm. Their neck's not strong enough. So my mom swooped into the room, and she picked you up and cooed at you and brought you on her kind of ample bosom and propped you there so that you were just inches away from her face and very kind of in your face. And you began to fuss and you, did, you didn't like it. You were uncomfortable. She kept cooing and gooing. And after some quite awkward, painful moments, I said, hey, mom, maybe it, I think he wants you to kind of hold him a little differently. And then she said famously, he doesn't know what he wants. Mm-hmm. And then I said, well, he was comfortable before you picked him up and held him in that way. Uh, I think he's telling you what he wants. And then she said, oh, who cares what he wants? And right there is a theory of parents. That's kind of all you need to know right there. Yeah. In a particular generation. I mean, that's like the whole thing. Yeah. And I yeah. was raised in that. And it's a well-intended frame. It's a traditional sure. frame. And my parents grew up in the, ni- in the 1920s in America and so forth. And, but it's really different to ask yourself, as I think is the basis of good parenting. And I, I received a lot of really good parenting, to be clear, but good parenting that recognizes that children, including very little children, have wants of their own and they know what they want and their wants have standing. Yeah. And then the question becomes, can you be skillful and ethical in the way that you exercise power? Because mm. to fulfill your responsibility to that child, you need to have commensurate power. You need to have commensurate authority. but under on what basis and on what grounds do you overrule the wants of that child? And there's a lot of research mm-hmm. that walks into families, certainly in America, let's say, and observes parents with their kids. And, you know, kind of on average, a typical, you know, preschooler, toddler, younger child, let's say, is getting corrected and having their wants either thwarted or criticized, you know, 20 times an hour. Imagine being on the job 20 times an hour, what you want is either ignored or criticized. That would accumulate mm. a lot. So there's a lot of unnecessary so-called control episodes. So, well, since I'm on a riff, I'll just summarize. Diana Baumrin's work, briefly, I met her, wonderful person. She helped me with my dissertation, uh, UC Berkeley. Oh, I didn't know that. That's super cool. Yeah, yeah, wonderful being. She basically thought about two dimensions, love and power. So high love, low love, high power, low power. Gives you a two by two matrix. There you go. And the sweet spot is high love, high power. In other words, Mm. parents who are both very loving and prepared to exercise appropriate authority. And she called those authoritative parents rather than authoritarian parents who are high power, low love. For myself, actually, I think there's a third dimension that is clear when you kind of unpack the power dimension. So I think myself of love, aspiration, and authority. So I'm Mm. unpacking the power dimension in terms of aspiration and authority. And I think the sweet spot, your best odd strategy, it's not a guarantee because the the kid has a role. The kid is a a player in the system. The kid has efficacy. The kid Mm -hmm. uh, creates effects. Mm -hmm. Is high love, high aspiration, moderate authority. Uh, I think there's a place for aspiration that has to do with encouraging kids to do their work in this society, which is to do their best in school. There's a place for establishing an encouragement for integrity, 
virtue, treating others with compassion. Uh, Just a positive vision for what's possible for them. Yeah, Yeah, being a decent person, basically. Yeah, Yeah, there's a a place for that. That's also a way to into uh, what makes a good parent. And then I'll just finish on this one that I think is is actually really important in in my own personal history. One is to uh, be careful about your own reactivity and to appreciate Mm. that few things are as reactive as raising a family. You know, you're Mm. tired, you've got issues with your partner, the neighbors, the relatives, the kid's not cooperative, you're worried, you're frazzled. Yeah. So be careful, be really careful, especially with anger. Mm -hmm. I would say almost all of my mistakes as a parent began with my anger. Second, repair, 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 repair. Real estate boils down to three things. Location, location, location. I think family making boils down to three things. Repair, repair, repair. And don't let the lack of repair keep going on day after day after day. On any given day, it might look like that it's a bad idea to try to enact a repair with your teenager, let's say. On that particular day, it might make things worse. But if the days become weeks and then years and you still haven't repaired, that is a huge, huge red light flashing on your inner dashboard as a parent. Make sure you make sure you repair. As somebody who has a long history of painful acne and related skin issues, I know how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's where our sponsor, OneSkin, comes in. Most skincare available on the market is designed to provide a temporary reduction in symptoms without addressing many of the underlying causes. OneSkin's OS01 line of products targets cellular senescence. This is a key hallmark of aging, directly with their proprietary OS01 peptide. The OS01 peptide can reduce the number of senescent cells by up to 50%, strengthening the skin barrier, improving skin health markers, and reducing visible signs of aging. I've been using their OS01 face topical supplement, and I love how simple it is. You just cleanse, you pat your skin dry, and apply twice daily. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. We all know that the food we eat today affects how we feel tomorrow. But what if I told you that it could affect how you felt in 20 years? We're learning so much these days about our bodies, and one of the challenges for people right now is that there's an enormous amount of information out there, but it can be difficult to separate fact from fiction. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Naomi's Apple Review says Zoe Science and Nutrition is Super easy to consume, even if you don't understand the science, with loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting, cutting-edge science. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Naomi and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. 
I think that was a fantastic summary of what good parenting looks like, by the way, Dad. And sometimes when uh, when one of us goes for a while, I have like my producer hat on and I'm kind of like, okay, this is the part that I'm going to kind of truncate this part <laughs> or stretch that part or whatever it is. I'm, I'm keeping all of that. I thought that was fantastic. And really just kind of summarizes, you know, a lot of what I wanted to get to already. One thing that I thought was super, super interesting, and maybe this is just me because I'm kind of like, I'm really interested in these different theories and I find the basis of them just really engrossing, was I bumped into Heinz Kohut and self-psychology when talking about what you were saying earlier about providing a function, serving a psychological function for the parent and the kind of dangers of that. And I just thought that where that came from just inside of ourselves was so interesting. So I'll just do a brief thing on that as another way to think of what good parenting looks like. Good parenting supports the needs of the child. It's a very simple one-sentence summary. But what are those needs, you know, and how do we support them? And that's, you know, where the rubber meets the road there. But kids are incapable of meeting their own needs. Bottom line, you know, if you think about a toddler, nothing is more vulnerable than like a three-month-old child, right? They are reliant on something else, some external object, in order to meet their internal needs. They are fundamentally vulnerable. And this is where self-objects come in, and this was a term from Kohut, self-psychology. This came about, I think uh, he did some of his work in the 1960s and 1970s predominantly. And self-objects are external objects that function as part of an individual's self-machinery. In other words, they're things outside of ourself that a person needs to complete the self. So really interesting here. A child needs a parent in order to complete them, you know, and that itself. They, they, as near as we can tell, in the mind of an infant, the parent and the infant are kind of one being with each other. And Kohut identified these three major needs that infants have. The first is called mirroring, and this is the need to be admired or to just have our goodness reflected back to us in the eyes of the parent. The second is called idealizing, and this is the need to find external things that will keep us safe and support us and then to be close to them. This is a safety need. And then third, something called twinship, which is really interesting, and it's the need to feel a sense of likeness to others. And in healthy systems, those three needs that we all have, idealizing, twinship, mirroring, are met by the parent. The parent serves this function for the kid, right? But then kids need to learn how to meet their own needs. They can't be reliant on the parent forever, right? This external object that they have, the parent needs to be increasingly internalized inside of themselves. And then over time, if things go well, there's this process of differentiation where the parent and the child start to separate a little bit. And the kid increasingly gains a sense of themselves as a being and the parent as the separate being from them. And sometimes that occurs because there are actually little disruptions of rapport. Like the parent's a little slow to get to the kid this one moment, that the kid gets a little frustrated with what the parent's doing. And there's this increasing sense of these two things as different things. But what's also interesting is that sometimes the kid can become a self-object for the parent, just as the parent is a self-object for the kid. So either side of it can resist that differentiation process. And this is when enmeshment occurs, where that healthy differentiation was supposed to happen, got stymied somewhere in the process, right? And this natural process started to break down. And that's the whole issue with having these really clinging wants from the kid. 
is that you tend to resist the process of differentiation, which leads to parentification and all of this stuff that we've talked about on the podcast in the past. So that was a fair amount of technical stuff, but I just think it is so cool. And I was wondering, uh, for starters, Dad, do you think I stuck the landing? Are we good there with that one? Is there anything else that you would like to add? I thought it was beautiful that you finally seen the light, that there is some merit in psychodynamic theory and practice. <laughs> I like psychodynamics. I, I, re- I, resist your, I resist your characterization of me here, Dad. I like psychodynamics. I just think it's complicated. Yeah, in Kohad, I, I'm particularly fond of that territory. And, you know, the ways in which you can start to realize this is a whole other thing. If in adult relationships, you start having this strange experience with people who genuinely have really, really deep and entrenched borderline and or narcissistic Mm -hmm. personality Mm -hmm. structures, which require others to kind of function as self-objects to maintain the coherence and the stability of their ongoing sense of being. And to be clear, when it feels like the the tiles that hold you together are starting to come unmoored from the grout, you know, that's keeping them in place. That can be really, really scary. So you start to feel like that you're really a weird sort of extension of their own being. They think you are kind of an extension of their own way of being, and they have a hard time allowing you to have a life of your own. So Mm -hmm. this is one way uh, to kind of Think about those experiences when you're starting to have them. That said, back to parenting. Yeah, essentially, there's this dynamic process in which, to use very loose, not literal metaphor, children internalize good parenting and then gradually, based on that healthy internalization, become more and more able to differentiate and stand on their own two feet, you know, and venture out into the world on their own. Yeah, exactly right. Great simple way to summarize that. And If you're listening to this, and you're listening from the stance of somebody like me, or maybe you were a parent in the past, I would understand if somebody were listening to this and going like, wow, this sounds hard. This sounds like a lot. The question might come along here at some point, like, are we holding parents to too high of a standard? Or is this like a realistic expectation to have of of being a parent? Like, could anybody live up to this? And that's where I think the notion from Winnicott of like the good enough parent becomes really, really useful for people. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, Dad. Oh, well, his notion, which I think can be understood well and understood badly. So the (laughs) the good understanding is to realize that it's impossible to be perfect. That's also why I really emphasize repair. And he was making an argument uh, for what's called optimal frustration. The idea Mm -hmm. that a certain amount of frustration of the desires of a child, they just won't be fulfilled, prompts the child to gradually develop the you know internal regulatory capabilities to do things like defer gratification or tolerate discomfort. Yeah, and differentiate from the parent, all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. On the one hand. On the other hand, I'm very leery of the any ideology that normalizes suffering in children. And sure. to be really yeah. clear, just life itself bumps and bruises, other kids, uh, parents who, you know, cannot be perfectly attentive all the time. Sometimes they're grumpy. Just life itself, you know, you you spill things, your stomach hurts, you get a headache, the bee stung you. There's plenty of frustration in life. Yeah. We don't need to add more frustration. Yeah. yeah totally fair you, point. 
you don't need to be casual about it. And I think that, yeah. frankly, a lot of parents don't bring a work ethic to being parents. Yeah. There's a place for really doing your job there, including the emotional labor of being a parent. Mm. And that, again, mm -hmm. goes to, hey, you know, are you really ready to sign up for this? Because if you're going to get on that bus, you've got some obligations there on that bus. Now, mm. one of the most beautiful things in my entire life has been to largely fulfill my obligations in, in spades uh, as a father. So just because you got some obligations doesn't mean it's some sort of, you know, big bucket of crud you've got to carry for the rest of your life. There can be a joy in carrying that bucket every day. It's very real for you. Well, I would love to ask you about that, Dad, if, you, if you're cool with me asking about it. I didn't want to cut you off there if there was something you wanted to add at the end. Oh, just the, just the bit about, and this was really the genesis of my own dissertation, like how do we respond mm. to the wants of a child? And to me, yeah. part of being a good parent is emotional, emotional availability, accurate reading of the wants of the child, and skillful responsiveness. And I think skillful responsiveness to the wants of kids very much is, means giving them what they want much of the time because it's fine. It's fine to give them what they want. And when it's just not appropriate, they want to play with the steak knives. They're sitting there at the table. They're a year and a half old. They want to play with the steak knives. What do you do? You go, bad child, wanting steak knives, bad, bad. That's not skillful. What's much better is to switch and engage which is what parents do, to basically, not the steak knife, sweetie, you want to play with these plastic spoons. They're great. And you draw them in. So it's a, I called my dissertation gratifying control. Uh, people can look mm. it up. We ought to post it to my website at some point. Uh, it's full of good material, including the literature review, kind of debunking the notion of optimal frustration and really underlying the impact of the gradual accumulation of emotionally painful experiences for children. Mm -hmm. And how you want to be really careful about adding to that pile. Yeah. So all that said, I think on the one hand, you're exactly right. Pressuring yourself, <sighs> white knuckling your way through every day of parenting that you've got to be perfect, particularly if that is embedded in some kind of role mandates and scripts as a, let's say, a woman in, a, in the yeah. culture, Ugh. that's going to lead to bad parenting because it's going to put too much pressure on you on the one hand. On the other hand, wow, not being casual or irresponsible about the impact on your kids of how you are, uh, that's, a, that's an important thing to be careful about. I would love to loop back here to a comment that you made a second or two ago where you were talking about the gratifications that were involved for yeah. you in parenting and what what was meaningful about it for you in a lot of different ways, because we've talked a lot here about the expectations for parents and what good parenting looks like and how it can be hard and the effort and all of that. And so I'd love just to, to ask you, maybe turn the conversation a little bit here, like, what was great about it? What did you enjoy about being the parent? Almost everything. <laughs> <laughs> and now, again, there's so much variation, right? Right now in America, about 11 million kids are living below the poverty line. Mm -hmm. And it's tough to raise a kid in poverty. It's a lot easier when you've got a little spare money to be able to talk to somebody when there's a problem, you know, with your child or in some way that you're just not able to solve on your own or by, you know, getting a book related to it. It's just, a, you know, it's a lot easier 
to be the kind of parent you want to be under different conditions. Your partner has a, makes really, really matters. You know, a large fraction of men are not engaged at all in the life of their kids, and that really has consequences. A certain number of mothers just essentially abandon their kids to the care of their, their family or, or the father. So, you know, it really matters. It really, really shapes it. So I was very fortunate in that context, in that context. Oh, my gosh. I think one of the great sorrows in this life is not being able to give all the love you have in your heart. There is no better being to give your love to than your child. There might be, your partner might be tied for first place, but to rest in that current of love between you and your child, is just a beautiful thing, a wonderful thing. So that's huge, Forrest, huge. Yeah. Another thing is that there can be something really deeply reparative in raising a child. When you think about the things that didn't go well in your own childhood, the things you wished had been different, the lessons you learned, to be able to enact those with your own child can be deeply healing. There's actually research on rats, and this is animal, non-human animal research with its ethical issues, but there's research on rats that essentially, if you stress an infant female rat, her brain changes in various ways, but then if you allow her in the experimental setting to have little rat babies and you allow her to, to nurture them in, in natural rat mama, mama rat kind of ways, that actually can heal some of the epigenetic consequences in her brain from the stresses she experienced as a baby rat. So there can be something really quite profoundly reparative. And that, that was definitely true for me. Another aspect is that it's freaking interesting because this kid mm. is changing mm -hmm. every day. And if you are attentive to psychology and, and, you, you, and all that, like I love little kids. I love kids in general. And I think infant, one of the root of the words for infant means without speech. So they don't speak English. <laughs> You don't know, <laughs> they get to be about a year and a half old or older or whatever your language is. You got to figure it out. It's interesting. It's fun. And all this stuff starts happening. Like they go to school and how do you work it out with the parents? And then you find yourself walking down the hallway of first grade as I did. At that point, I had a PhD. I was independent. You know, I was pushing 40. Yeah. And we're going to have a conference with your first grade teacher. And my heart's starting to pound because I'm nervous about the teacher pulling up my material from being a little kid in elementary school, you know, many, many years before. So there's a lot about it that's super interesting. And then I would say another thing, and maybe I'll just finish with four here. It's fun. What a trip. Mm -hmm. You know, you start discovering reality from what it looks like with your eyes a foot off the ground. You know, the height of your kid crawling across the living room floor. You start seeing all these objects. You, you start learning about child development. It teaches you things about yourself. You see other people treating your child in various ways when, you know, they're one year old. And you think, oh, uh, that's why I'm weird like that, you know, because mm, I got mm -hmm. treated in that way that wasn't so good myself. I yeah. mean, it's, it, yeah. and it's fun uh, in weird yeah. ways. You get to do stuff. We have video of us going out on lakes with these weird blow-up toys and, and paddling around. And, and for me, being incarnated as a human animal, I just would not want to leave out parenthood. It mm, just seems mm -hmm. like... Just a major, major ride in 
the amusement park of a human life. But I just didn't want to go through this life without, without having strapped on to the mama mothership, you know, and experienced that rocket, <laughs> which I still am, am experiencing, you know, as you and uh, your sister are, you know, in your 30s. So I want you to help me answer a question here, Dad. If you could fill in the blank for me. If you don't like fill in the blank, you probably shouldn't become a parent. If you don't like children, you probably should not <laughs> yeah. become a parent. Well, that's a good place to start, that's for sure. Yeah, and some people don't. I mean, I could go, I could name a lot of stuff. But on the other hand, I having experienced all those things, having experienced all those things, uh, your relationship to human excrement really changes when you start having kids. Uh, <laughs> you become much more matter-of-fact about it. So um, your point here is that people are adaptable and yeah, you know, yeah, maybe there are some things yeah. that you're really concerned about going in that yeah. actually you kind of adapt out of, yeah. It also helps to realize that as challenged as you know a person may be who's contemplating having kids, you are better set up for being a great parent than 99% of the parents who have ever lived, with the single exception of the breakdown of extended family and community. But otherwise, you are there's more knowledge about what skillful parenting involves, particularly to the extent you live in civil society. There, there are protections against many of the forces that really made parenthood awful in in you know millennia past. You know the mortality rate, for example, in hunter-gatherer bands of uh, newborn children is roughly five out of six on average will mm. not make it to their sixth birthday. Think about living through the deaths of so many of your own children and needing to, as certainly as a female, bear go through pregnancy one after the other in order to have two or three kids who might survive to adulthood. So it's, you know, we're, we're, we're really set up in a lot better ways today. And that's an important thing, I think, to take into account as well. Mm-hmm. Something that I didn't think that we were going to talk about today, but that I've come to this as you've been talking that. Mm. There are probably people who are listening to this conversation, even though I set it up as should you become a parent or do you want to become a parent and that kind of orientation, who are parents? Yeah, Maybe they're the parents of a three-year-old or a five-year-old, a young kid right now. Maybe they're an older person with adult children. And they're hearing us talk about all of these things that it's important to do as a parent or that like what a good parent looks like. And they're kind of looking back over a period of time and going, wow, I don't know if I did that. Mm. And there's some regret and some remorse and some yeah. guilt and some material that's just kind of creeping in as we're having this conversation. And for starters, you know, that's not our intent here. And yeah. certainly apologies to anybody who's had that experience as they're as they're listening to this. But also I'd like to just ask you, Dad, like how would you relate to that or what do you think might be supportive of that person? Yeah. Well, I am that person. Mm. It's really complicated mm. because kids are causal factors in their own right. And as a parent, you can tick all the boxes. You can do everything you believe quite sincerely and benevolently is the best way to be a parent, which because of that particular child in this particular culture at this particular time really lands badly. And that's another mm -hmm. thing to think about. The truth is it's a lot easier and a lot harder 
to be a parent today than it was a generation or two ago, when there was typically much more homogeneity in the culture around parenting. You went to the same church, you went to the same school, you're in the same little league teams that kind of supported uh, norms of, in terms of that aspiration dimension and also related to the parental authority dimension in which there was a kind of consistency. So it, the community was raising your, your kid, not just you. So many, many things can occur that years later, speaking from experience, uh, you look back on with regret, even remorse, that are multi-dimensional, multifactorial. They're caused by so many things, only some of which is you. Now that said, you can look back and you can identify those portions of your parenting that you feel today, yeah, really deserve a wince and that you really regret and you even have some remorse for. And I myself have just really been on a pretty deep journey over the last mm. year and a half or so around that particular topic. That's been really, really important. And I just want to say that it's okay, it's normal to look back with a recognition of what you could genuinely consider to be mistakes, regrets, and remorse. And there's a process that you and I, I think, wrote very skillfully about in the chapter on uh, generosity, the last skill or strength in the resilient book of the 12 strengths yeah. model, including forgiveness and self-forgiveness and a real accounting, and then you move through it. And then very important, boy, I would just really want to name this for people. After you've done the appropriate work, of reckoning, reckoning with your mistakes, feeling appropriate feelings, making amends as best you can, and all the rest of that, it's okay. It's okay to give yourself permission to turn the corner. It doesn't mean that you're denying what happened or, or lying about it or suppressing it. It's that you're giving yourself permission to not be preoccupied with it, to not ruminate about it, or to keep beating yourself up about it. You've punished yourself enough it's okay. It's okay. You've learned the lesson. You're allowed to turn that corner. Very important thing. Yeah, well, this has been, you know, a very wide-ranging one, and we could certainly do a couple of other episodes on this topic, I would say. As we come toward the end here, I want to name a couple of other important considerations that people might have inside of this process that we've alluded to along the way, or maybe even set out right, but I just want to kind of restate them here. And the first one is, what kind of a community are you going to do this on? Are you, um, I, I've had Lori Gottlieb on the podcast a couple of times, and she wrote very openly, and maybe you should talk to somebody, her wonderful book, about the process of being a single mother who chose to raise a kid on her own, and um, to do it essentially all by herself. Now, I'm sure that she had a social support mm -hmm. system and things like that. I don't know what the specifics were. Um, but just as a single mother, you know, that is a big endeavor. And is that something that you as a person want to do? If you don't want to do that, what does your partnership look like with another person? Who are you raising this with? Who's involved? Are the, are the grandparents involved? Are the parents involved? Are you, uh, you know, how much time do you have in your life in order to do this? Like, what's the, the circumstances within which you're bringing this child into the world? Then second, if you're doing this with a primary partner, of some kind, what's your relationship with that primary partner like? What does that look like? How do you think they are? How do you think they'll deal with raising a kid? What kind of conversations have you had with them about that whole process? 
Uh, what do you think their values are? What do you think their issues might be with uh, liking the idea of doing something with a kid versus really wanting a particular kind of thing from a kid? And then third, really practically, um, as we've said a few times, unfortunately, and just the way we have society set up, uh, raising a kid is incredibly expensive often for people. There's a real financial demand associated with this process. I, I wish it were otherwise, but in the United States these days, it is what it is. And are you set up to be able to do that? Do you have the resources to be able to do that in, in a real way to support yourself and also to support a child? What would that look like practically? And these are all just important things, I think, to check some boxes around before you get into this process. Is there anything else that you would like to add to that, Dad? Yeah, I actually would like to add two things. Bear with me. So the first one is I can certainly imagine, and I think it sometimes occurs, that a person whose adult child is now, let's say, in their 20s, out in the world, they're not that actively engaged in parenting. So there's an opportunity for a certain big picture, retrospective view of things. And they could look back and they could say, well, I do love my child. I love my child dearly. So at a certain level, I'm incredibly glad that they've been in my life. And yet, you know, I can imagine the life I might have had had I not had that child. And I can imagine a lot of the pluses that would have occurred in that life had I not had that child. And then sometimes what a person can do is they can do that analysis before having kids. They can kind of look forward to a life with or without a child a little bit like they're sort of evaluating, you know, should I buy this house or that house? Should I get this car or that car? Should I live in this city or in that city? And that's understandable. And sometimes, you know, that's a useful thing. But on the other hand, I think most people would say that at the point that they had a child, and certainly at the point that that child appeared and they got through the first six months, the first you know, year or so, and the child really began to, you know, demonstrate its own particularity, its own personality, its own beingness, its own lovability, and they started to develop a relationship with each other. At that point, something very primal, somatic, visceral, essential is coming through that just blows apart the tissue of all these bookkeeping type calculations about different potential scenarios for the future. You are just, you're just gripped. And the thought of imagining your life without this child or woulda, coulda, shoulda, it's pretty uncommon actually. Much of the time you are just carried away in this visceral commitment and love for this being. And there's no more debate about it. You are committed. <laughs> you know, you are fully signed up for the ride. So that's one thing. Second thing I wanna say is that I do think for people who are engaging in an historically and biologically absolutely unprecedented opportunity to choose whether or not to have a child, one way into that could be looking back on your life from the perspective, as you and I talk, of the porch. There you are in your comfortable old age. You're looking back. And when you look back on your life, will you have been glad that you raised a family. You say, we say have a child. You're really talking about having a child, a, you know, a toddler, a elementary age kid, a teenager, a young adult, someone who 
gradually the arc of their life keeps ascending as the like as the arc of your life gradually descends. It's it's a long relationship. Will you have been glad that you had a child, that you raised a family? And if so, that's a pretty good indicator. On the other hand, if your honest view when you look back from the porch is kind of a coin toss, hey, take it or leave it, yeah, kind of even, pluses, minuses. Well, hmm, maybe not. that's not such a good indicator about having a child altogether. And then the last thing I'll say about this, which could get me into trouble, it's that I think with modernity, it is possible to go through life in a kind of partially committed way. And I think that in my value system, that then there's something missing in a person's life. There's something not fully committed or wholehearted or rooted. And one way, definitely, to have a wholehearted, committed, rooted engagement in this life is through raising a family, absolutely. But it's not the only way. So if you're going to go through this life choosing to not raise a family, fine. And it might well be in your self-interest to look for other ways Mm. to have a loosely, comparably, viscerally engaged, committed, and rooted involvement with this life and its ultimate mortality. Yeah, I think that's really, that's a great reflection, Dad, and just the importance of finding meaning in a lifetime and the different pursuits that people have to find that meaning. For many, that'll be parenthood. Maybe parenthood's not that one for you. If you're listening to this, you got to the end of this episode and you're like, you know what? I just don't think that one's it for me. That's really okay. And to your point, if you are going to go the direction of not parenthood in this calculus, great to find another way to find that sort of deep, meaningful pursuit in your life as a grounding experience that gets you to the end of it and helps you look back over the whole thing and go, yeah, that looks right to me. This episode was a really interesting one for me. And I think that Rick and I both really enjoyed the experience of having this conversation about parenting, about should you become a parent as a parent and a child. It was just a really unique experience for both of us. And we started the conversation by talking about the importance of this choice altogether. It's really common to just sort of slide into being a parent for many people. And of course, there are many circumstances where somebody becomes a parent without having gone through a really careful calculation of whether or not they want to make that choice. But we focused today's conversation on the more deliberate choice related to becoming a parent. And one of the things that really influences how I think about this uh, this whole question is this moral dimension to the whole thing. Parents just have a level of control and influence over their children's lives that is hard to overstate. There's so much power that you have over an infant and over its outcomes in life that, man, if I'm getting into it, if I'm going to be a parent, I really want to be the best parent that I can be. I want to take it seriously. I want to give to this child. I want to give them the best possible chance of making it work in a life that can be really difficult for people. 
that's one of my big motivations. And it's not even purely altruistic in nature, right? If I'm going to have a kid, I would really like it if I had a good relationship with that kid. And the best odds strategy for that is to be as good a parent I can be. That doesn't guarantee that that will happen. Kids pop out different ways. Lots of things happen in life. Who knows? But hey, that's my best bet right there. And I think that question of what our motivation is and having a child is such an important question to ask. And some common motivations for people include various wants that we have from our kids. Maybe we have a want for companionship. We want a friend or somebody to look after us in our old age. Maybe we have a desire around legacy. We want to leave something behind. Or maybe we want to receive love because we feel like we haven't gotten enough of it in our lives. These are all understandable wants, but they're also very dangerous wants because our child doesn't consent to that before popping out. We are wanting things from them that they haven't agreed to. And bottom line, the kid becomes a means to an end rather than an end itself. And I think that that's where so many of the horror stories around parenting come from, are situations where either the parent didn't really want the kid and had one anyway for whatever reason, or second, situations where the parent viewed the child as a means to their ends. Now, of course, we have blends of motivations in life. And one of the things that Rick said that I thought was really important is this distinction between liking it if something happened with a child versus wanting things from a child. And I think those two orientations are so different in practice. Like There are lots of things where I would really love it if I got it from my kid, or I would really love it if I did it with my kid. But I am very, very cautious about that kind of insistent wanting energy. Then we turned the conversation toward what good parenting looks like in practice, and Rick gave just a great list of the things that good parenting can include. To name just a few of them here, being really emotionally regulated is what good parenting looks like, being supportive of the needs of the child, being able to relate to them and see things through their experience, which can, particularly for a very young child, be a very uh, at-sea experience in the reality of life, right? Where there's a lot of crazy stuff going on that you really don't quite understand, but it's all just sort of happening to you. He talked about being really present and responsive and receptive to the changes that happen as a child ages. And even the joy that can be present in that for a parent, the, the sense of newness and freshness and adventure that comes along with it because you've got this little being that's emerging in front of your eyes in this very, very cool and dynamic way. He also talked about the work of Diana Baumrind on parenting styles, and uh, she envisioned that there was essentially these two dimensions to parenting. He called them love and power. I think that technically she referred to them as responsiveness and demandingness. So how demanding are you of the child and how responsive are you to its needs? And if you combine those two uh, variables together, you get this little two-by-two -two box with four different styles, right? And one of them is authoritative, that's high responsiveness and high demandingness, or high love and high power, as Rick said. Then authoritarian, that's low responsiveness but high demandingness. Then permissive, high responsiveness, low demandingness. And finally, neglectful, low responsiveness and low demandingness. And Rick even added this uh, third dimension onto the whole thing, where he talked about aspiration. And in his view, Good parenting is very responsive, has a lot of aspiration, and is medium in terms of how much power you exercise. 
Another way to think about what good parenting looks like is through the lens of fundamental needs. What are the actual fundamental needs that a person has and how can parenting go about meeting them? And that's when I talked about the work of Kind's Kohut and these three needs of mirroring, idealizing, and twinship. We all have those needs, but kids need their parents to meet those needs for them. And then over time, they go through, hopefully, this healthy process of differentiation from the parent, where they get better and better at meeting their own needs without needing the parent to meet them for them. And we can maybe think about some examples of when this process doesn't work the way that we would hope. And maybe that looks like enmeshment or codependency or uh, helicopter parenting or parentification, which we've talked about in previous episodes. We then spent a little while talking about how all of this can really feel like it's putting a lot of pressure on parents. A lot of expectations for their behavior, a lot of what it means to be a good parent. Wow, are you telling me that I can't be a good parent if I don't do all of these things or don't oh know all of this stuff? And that's not really what we're saying here at all. But what we are saying is that it's good to be equipped with the tools before you enter this particular arena. Because one of the things that Rick emphasized was that once you become a parent, you know, a lot of this stuff goes out the window. It becomes a very practical exercise where you are strapped to the roller coaster of parenting and Mother Nature is kind of seizing the wheel in some ways of this whole enterprise. And just a lot of stuff goes on. But because there's so much inertia, when you're in the act of being a parent, that just makes it more important to, if you can, if it's available to you, go through this kind of a process ahead of time. One of the parts of the episode that, as you can probably imagine, I particularly enjoyed was when I asked Rick what he got out of being a parent. Like, what was it like for him? What did he enjoy about the process? Because again, we've talked about all these things that parents need to do, all these obligations that they have. What's in it for them? And he really shared in a beautiful way just the depth of the emotional experience of being a parent and how he really views it as an, an irreplaceable experience in a person's life. Now, if you choose not to be a parent, as many people do, and many people also have that choice thrust upon them where they didn't choose not to be a parent, but things just turned out that way for one reason or another. One of the things he emphasized at the very end of the conversation was the importance of finding something else in life that could give you a similar level of fulfillment, some other pursuit, something else that you really care about, something that's going to put you into community in a way where a parent is often, not always, but often put into community. In other words, something else that can serve as that kind of a uh, guiding light of fulfillment. So when you finally get toward the end of hopefully a long and wonderful life, you can look back over it and go, you know what, I'd say I mostly got what I wanted out of that. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I certainly got a lot out of it personally. If you've been enjoying the podcast for a while and you haven't subscribed yet, would love it if you did that. If you're watching on YouTube, you can subscribe there. If you are uh, listening through your podcast feed of choice, hey, subscribe on that one. And if you would really like to help us out, you can leave a rating and a positive review wherever you get your podcasts, particularly on iTunes, because that one seems to matter a little bit more than the other ones for us. And if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a few dollars a month, you can support the show and get a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.